week and a half or so, I've uh, been away on vacation. We went to my in-law's lake house. And one of the things I've learned about going to my in-law's lake house is that uh, I'm always presented with a list of projects to take care of while I'm at the lake house. And I find that I come back from vacation needing a vacation from my vacation. Uh, I call it cheap rent, so I'm not complaining too much. But it's interesting, one of the things that my father-in-law, who is a retired contractor, Ken owned a um, a commercial construction company, uh, put up hotels, dormitories, office buildings, things like that all over the the southeast. Um, I spent about two days apprenticing in landscape irrigation under my father-in-law's tutelage. And while I was doing that, I was thinking about all the times that I was doing projects with my own dad, who is now a part of the church triumphant. Uh, I'll say some more about him later on in the sermon, I think. But I was thinking about what it was like working with my dad and what it's like working with my father-in-law. So get ready, Ryan. Happy birthday, by the way. We'll play rock, paper, scissors later to see whether today is Father's Day or your birthday. <laughs> I, was th- I was thinking about all the things that I've learned from Ken Up Church, my father-in-law, all the lessons that I learned from my own dad and, and the ways that they have shaped me and taught me what it means to be a man today. And I was thinking with Father's Day coming up in this message, I was thinking, boy, dads are all over the spectrum. You know, there are the good dads and there are the bad dads. There are the dads who are there, who are um, coaching their children's soccer teams and basketball teams and Little League baseball and and, uh, going not only on Boy Scout camp house, but doing Indian princess with their daughters. Uh, There are the dads who are absent, who are not there. And they leave a, a hole in the hearts of their children. There are the dads who think that you know, I work hard, I bring home the bacon, I, I'm traveling, uh, I'm not around a lot, but the time that I'm around is I make sure it's quality time. Let me pop that bubble for dads for just a minute and tell you there's no such thing as quality time without quantity time. It takes a lot of time with your family for some of that time to be good time. They're the caricatures of dads. There's the the picture of the dad that is just absolutely, positively overwhelmed. He is in over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's sitting there thinking, whose dumb idea was it to have a child in the first place? On the other end of the spectrum, there's a dad who is so into it, he is the, the uber macho dad who's trying to outdo everybody else. So you you guys who had a baby this year, you may want to try and get one of these tricked out baby strollers and and be the envy of every family in the neighborhood. Uh, Father's Day is a time when, you know, our culture invites us to think about our dads, think about what it means to be a dad, think about our children. And I think, think about the legacy that we have received and the legacy that we are passing on to the next generation. As we get ready to think about the legacy that God has given to us through the words of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. God, thanks for 
dads, but most importantly today, we thank you that you are our Heavenly Father who has promised never to leave us or to forsake us. Help us as we read and, and listen to and reflect on these words that were spoken and, and written so long ago. May your Holy Spirit work in our lives and help us to understand their application for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 31, beginning to read at verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or, or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Amen. May the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing and preservation of these words inspire them for our understanding as well. It's legacy. Those, those of you who had big sprawling families who are battle scarred because you've got that oldest child to all the way back to those who were just a couple of months old, we think about the legacy that the generations before us have given to us and we think about the legacy that we're going to leave to the generation behind that, that comes after us. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, I looked up the definition of the word legacy, and here it is. Anything handed down from the past as from an ancestor or predecessor. So it's not just the tools that I got from my dad that, that you know, one day I'm going to pass on to someone else. It's not just the, the shotgun that your granddad used to hunt with that you now hunt ducks with yourself. It's not just the stuff, it's also the, the emotional, familial DNA that's inside of us, that shaped us into who we are today. William Strauss and Neil Howe are two sociologists who have written a number of books. Their, their first book came out in the early 1990s. It's simply entitled Generations, subtitled The History of America from 1624, and they, they forecast it out into the 21st century. They looked at the history of this nation through this ongoing cycle of generations. 
what each generation experienced, the, the generational characteristics, and how that generation was able to shape the next generation, which shaped the next generation. So they were able to forecast in 1990, the early 1990s into the 2020s. Now you, you understand that because you know how the generation or the generations that came before you have shaped you into who you are today. Strauss and Hout say that we make a conscious choice about how we will parent our children based on the way we were parented. In other words, you are either a tape recording of your mom or dad or you have rebelled against that and forged your own path as a parent. Sometimes we think about uh, families that have a, a rebellious child. You realize that, that sometimes a rebellious child doesn't mean a, a kid from a good family gone bad. It can be a kid from a, a dysfunctional family. Hey, every family of origin is dysfunctional. Every family of origin is dysfunctional, some more so than others. Sometimes a rebellious child is a kid that came from a, a severely dysfunctional family and made the conscious choice to pave a different path. Sometimes we just live out what we saw our parents doing. I was raised in the household of a man who drilled into me this kind of litany. There's a place for everything, everything in its place. If you turn it on, turn it off. If you open it, close it. If you use it, put it back. Anybody else? I thought I remembered you guys at the Thanksgiving table. How many of you who were raised that way have successfully passed that expectation on to the next generation? Okay, not so successful so far. We're working on that one. You know, the way we were parented, the legacy we received is something that we either pass on or jettison. My dad's father, my granddad, the only grandfather that I knew, uh, granddad, I called him, lived down the street and around the corner, about a half mile away from us, uh, saw him frequently. My granddad died on my birthday, my freshman year in college. It was in the mid-1970s. Granddad had had cataract surgery. This is back when he was in the hospital for two weeks, sandbags on either side of his head to keep him immobile. Uh, he'd been released from the hospital. They thought he may have had a stroke while he was laying still for so long, and he, he was in his early, mid 80s, but his eyesight had gotten so much better, he was starting to talk about getting his driver's license again. He went for a follow-up appointment to see his internist. He was in the doc's office, and the doctor said, you know, Mr. Roberts, for a, a man who just spent two weeks in the hospital, you're doing pretty good. There's something in your chest I can't quite put my finger on. You go home and, and take it easy. Let me look at these tests, and I'll call you back in in a little bit, and, and we'll talk some more. And so my grandmother and grandfather are walking outside, and as they're walking out, my grandmother says, Grover, you look tired. Why don't you sit right here? Let me go get the car and I'll pull it up to the door. She goes, gets the car, pulls it up to the door. He doesn't come out. She waits a minute. Finally, she gets out of her car, walks in. He's gone. 
He's checked out. Uh, he has joined the church triumph. Not real good PR for the doctor's practice. But every doctor and nurse in the clinic was on him. There was nothing they could do. He was gone. A couple of weeks later, I got a letter from my grandmother uh, who shared a lot of things with me, but in the letter, she shared this. This is just a couple of sentences from that letter. She said, he may not have had much to leave you in a material way, but Chuck, he left you a good name, an honorable inheritance. He and his brother Miles were honest and upstanding men and had the respect of all who knew them. Your dad has upheld the same fine characteristics. That's legacy. It's something that my grandfather passed on to my father, that my father passed on to me, that, that I have tried to pass on to my children. It's legacy. It's not stuff. It's who we are. Jeremiah talks about legacy in this passage where he, he talks, he, he uses a phrase that obviously was common to people that people were familiar with at the time. In, in verse 29, he says, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor about sin. And what Jeremiah has actually said in this context is, no longer will this take place. No longer will people say this. But we get it. You know what it's like to, to bite into a, a sour grape, one that's not ripe, and you, you bite it and you say, ah, ugh, and it makes your teeth feel funny. He says, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on age. We get that. Because what Jeremiah was saying was that there was a time in Israel's history when people were punished not for their sins, but the sins of the generation that preceded them. And he says that's not going to be the case any longer. From now on, people will eat sour grapes and their own teeth will be set on edge. We get it. We emulate our parents. We either are the tape recorders that they taped, we do the exact same things the exact same way. I can't tell you how many times my wife has said to me, you look just like your father when you did that or when you said that. I think about the book that was on the coffee table at the lake house for so many years. Some of you probably have this book. The title is, Oh Lord, I Sound Just Like Mama. We understand it. We either do the same thing our parents did, or we choose a different path. My dad used to look at me and say, son, do like I say, not like I do. It's like, this doesn't make sense, dad. But I get it. I get it today. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. You are a product of your past. You're not a prisoner of your past. You're a product of your past. You're not a prisoner of your past. Your history has shaped you, but you can choose a different path. You don't have to do the exact same thing the exact same way and expect a different result. You can choose to do things differently. You can choose what kind of legacy you're going to leave the succeeding generations in your own family. 
The context of this passage that Jeremiah shares comes during a period of Israel's history where they've kind of been on this roller coaster of kings. Jeremiah is, is speaking truth to the people of Judah at a time when Josiah is king. I'll, I'll say a word about him in just a minute. But to help you understand that you're a product of the past, you're not a prisoner of it, that the parents have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. Sometimes it comes, sometimes it goes. Let's look at just a few of the generations that preceded King Josiah. Let's jump back about four generations and recognize that the king of Israel was a man named Ahaz. Ahaz led Judah, excuse me, the southern kingdom, Judah, for 16 years. Ahaz was a particularly bad king. He did bad things. He carried out bad practices. He led the nation in a... a, disloyal way. He led the nation away from God. For 16 years, the people were subject to a horrific leader. Following him, his son Hezekiah is born. So you think that Hezekiah is going to continue the practice of his father, but actually Hezekiah was a good king. And for 31 years, Hezekiah tore down the pagan temples that his father had built. He reversed the practices of his father and led the people back to God. For 31 years, he led them. You would think that his son, Manasseh, would follow in his footsteps. But Manasseh was a bad king. And for 55 years, Manasseh led Judah. Rebuilt pagan temples, desecrated the temple of the Lord, led the people away from God, centralized faith in himself, not in God. 55 years he leads. He dies, his son Ammon becomes becomes king. Ammon, see how it's gone? Bad, good, bad. So what's Ammon gonna be? Ammon is a bad king. He continues the practices of his father. But the people have had enough of it. And after Ammon has been king for two years, only two years, he is assassinated and his son Josiah ascends to the throne. Josiah is eight years old when he becomes the king of Judah. And Josiah leads Judah for 31 years. And for 31 years, Josiah is a good king. In fact, if you delve deep into the understanding of the kings of the Jewish people, you will discover that the Jewish people revered Josiah even more than they revered David. And it's because Josiah enacted this national reform and led the people in a covenant to re-pledge themselves to God, tore down the pagan temples, centralized the worship of God in Jerusalem, Uh, rebuilt the temple, led the people back to God. And it's under Josiah that Jeremiah as a prophet says, no longer will the people say that the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. No, instead, people will eat sour grapes and their own teeth will be set on edge. But do you remember what he said later on in verse 34? He said, no longer will people teach one another or say to their neighbor, know the Lord. Jeremiah says, because they will all know me. 
from the least, the youngest, to the greatest, the oldest. That word know is an interesting word. The Hebrew word da'at first appears in the second chapter of Genesis. Scratch your head for a minute and think about how it could appear in the second chapter of Genesis. That's where the Bible tells us Adam knew his wife Eve. It describes not head knowledge, but an intimate, personal knowledge. You know, there's a difference between knowing someone or knowing about someone. For instance, how many of you know anything about a man by the name of Billy Graham? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't, you know? I've been in the same room with Billy Graham. If you can call the Georgia Dome the same room. Uh, when Frank Harrington was a co-chair of the crusade in the early mid-90s, uh, he invited all of us who were on staff with him. If we wanted to be on uh, stage with Dr. Graham, uh, I was on stage with Dr. Graham. Um, didn't get real close to him, got about as close as the front of the transept to the back of the transept, never shook his hand. I know one of his nephews, one of his nephews is a very good friend of mine. I never knew Billy Graham. I knew about him. My dad, I knew. Now, dad died 15 years ago, very suddenly and unexpectedly, and mom, who had a, a basket full of health issues, uh, followed him about 10 weeks later. About six weeks after my mother's death, uh, my sister and I were back in Arkansas at their condo that they'd been in for about 11 years, and we're trying to figure out what we're gonna do with you know 57 years worth of stuff. And we're sitting there early one morning, and I said to my sister, hey, this was like mid-September, I said, hey, let's get up in the attic and get the stuff out of the attic before the heat, before the sun heats up the attic. So we run out, we pull the attic stairs down, I go upstairs, and I start pulling stuff out and passing it down to my sister. This is the old 8-millimeter uh, movie projector and screen and, and box of family movies, there's Christmas decorations, Easter decorations, all kinds of stuff from their life. And as I'm pulling stuff out and passing it down to my sister, I'm looking farthest away from the attic access was this black plastic bag. And I thought, what, what is in that bag? Because most of these boxes I've seen my whole life, I knew what was in them. And I'm thinking, what's in that bag? And finally, there was nothing in the attic but that. And, and I'm crawling back in the attic and I reach out and I put my hand on the bag. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I can't tell you what I said out loud. And my sister says, what, 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 what is it? And I said, hang on. And so I drag it, you know, to the attic opening and, and I pick up this black plastic bag and I said, Kaki, this is really heavy and, and I think it's fragile. So look at, and I just turned loose of it. And she screams and catches it. It was a bag of pine straw. <laughs> yeah, I know, in the attic. And Kaki and I sat there and looked at this and thought, what in the world? And I thought about it for a minute and I said, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why this is in there. I knew my dad. They sold a house that mom had been born in. They sold it and moved out of it. And about the time of the closing on that house, now dad didn't tell me this story, John, but I knew my dad. I know how his mind worked. 
He had gone back over to the house and was just eyeballing it and trying to make sure he had all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And he's looking in the side yard and he sees all the pine straw that had fallen from the neighbor's pine trees. And he thought, I might want that. He was a child of the Depression. You've heard me say he was shot, captured by the Germans, spent 10 months as a POW. Dad could scavenge with the best of them. He could spot a screwdriver in three feet of grass, 20 feet off the right of way at 75 miles an hour and stop and get it. So dad thought, I may want that. He gets a rake and a bag. He sweeps it up, puts it in the bag, takes it to the condo, brand spanking new condo, puts it in the garage. Mom says, get that out of my garage. So dad might want that one day, puts it in the attic. And as all the stuff goes in the attic, it gets pushed farther and farther and farther back. There's a difference between knowing about someone and really knowing someone. God has given us the gift of knowing him. And if you know him, you know that the way Peter describes us in the New Testament is spot on. This is what Peter says. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's you. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once, you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When you know God, you know you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Once you were not a people, but when you ask Jesus to come into your heart, you are a people. It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know God. How do you know God? The same way you know your wife. You spend time with her. The same way you know your children. You spend time with them. The same way you know your parents. You spend time with them. You hang out with them. You do projects with them. You get to know them by spending time with them. You know, the Christian faith is not a religion. It's a relationship. And we need to know the person, the God, who lets us know him in that relationship. Let us pray. God, thank you for making us to be your chosen people, a royal priesthood, people that you love, and that you choose not to hold our sins against us, but a people that you know and that you let know you. Today, may we live as your covenant people in all that we do. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen.